0: And one and two and, and two and one and oh shucks I can't dance.
1: Welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro.
0: And my name is Troy Whitmore. And today
1: we're gonna to do something a little bit different.
0: Instead of regaling you with stories about open government and open data, we're going to take an agile approach and quickly look back at our first three episodes. And this will be our way to conclude
1: Season 1 of this podcast. And when we come back in January of 2020, we'll have an improved formula. There's something you should know first, though. So far, episodes have been tightly scripted with very little room for improvisation. We even post the scripts on reopengov.org for people who would rather Read the stories, then listen to them. Even this whole introduction has been written down word for word. But today, Troy and I are gonna riff based on questions we'll ask each other. You know, have a meta conversation about open government, open data in this podcast. So without further ado, here we go. Creating a brand new podcast, especially about something like open government and open data, which in and of itself is a very difficult subject for people to understand. And you yourself, you're brand new to the world of podcasting. We, we know each other through the restaurant that I used to work at. You were a regular there, and obviously I was your waiter, and we, we got to be friends, and I got to learn about your passion for entering into the world.
0: This is total first time. First time uh, playing with a mixer, a compressor, sitting across from somebody uh, else wearing headphones, talking into a microphone, yes. And talking about a subject matter you know very little about. Well what got I mean I've been listening to podcasts for years and 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 really appreciate you know good storytelling and that's what interested me in getting into you know pr- helping people produce podcasts is is essentially you get a chance to help people tell their stories
1: yeah, and how has because we've had a lot of frustrations along the way once again, like even on the scripted podcast, there's a lot of elements of understanding the flow back and forth because when we tell our stories we we go back and forth quite a bit um there's and my goal when i created stories from the open gov was we need to to do a performance we need to make this subject entertaining and sometimes it can be intimidating to be on the mic um especially if you don't have that um that sort of experience. And, the, and, and Can you talk a little bit about that, like doing a performance about a subject you don't understand when you're not really even an actor to begin with?
0: Well, I go back to, you know, uh, I, I, th- I think of it from the, the listener's perspective. As somebody who listens to a lot of podcasts, I also have a fairly short fuse in terms of, you know, if I'm listening to a podcast on a particular subject and and the hosts are spending the first 10 minutes rambling on about their weekend or stuff like that. Well, (laughs) my, uh, my time's a little bit more valuable than that. And, uh, so I'll be quick to sort of, you know, hit delete and move on to something else if that happens on a regular basis. Uh, the other deciding factor is uh, sound quality. I mean, they, they did studies for years, you know, that showed that people will tolerate a bad picture much longer than they will bad audio. So, um, I think we've got that covered in terms of you know producing something that sounds good uh, from a listening standpoint. Now it's just a matter of the subject matter and the delivery. Um, the part that I found challenging with the scripting, um, when and the scripting made total sense since you're not sitting across from somebody who's a you know a long time you know open gov open data advocate or practitioner. Um, you know I've got an interest in the subject and a uh, and and somewhat of a you know somewhat of an awareness, um, and I think it's good to bring that perspective to the podcast, you know, the, the outsider perspective, um, but at the same time, you know, working with a script, I'm thinking about the listener, and it's not supposed to sound scripted, and that's the challenge, is making something that's scripted sound natural and conversational.
1: And it's so, it's so true, and and you and I have gone back and forth quite a bit, and I think Obviously, I've been doing this for a little bit longer, and I, I, I've had the opportunity to do performances, and I understand the value of doing performances, and that's sort of the magic of Hollywood in a way. All those movies, all those TV shows—they're all scripted. News anchors—they're reading off a teleprompter, right? But they make it sound natural, and and I remember like the the the, the analogy that I always use about creating content and even if it's a presentation on stage like everything starts with with words on a page right the avengers movies like marvel movies they all start with about 180 pages of words on a page the thing is is that these actors and these producers and these directors are great about getting a performance out of it we need to apply those rules those those methods to open government and open data but since we're not getting any money for this we don't get the training that perhaps we should be getting like say a brad pitt got kind of deal so it's it's been a challenge and a lot of the times we'll be going through the script itself and we'll be like yeah that was a terrible read we're gonna have to cut and do it again and and there's been a lot of cuts i have this thing that i do uh which is uh to see on the timeline and i'm gonna do it right now which is this, and that's sort of like an indication of a cut for me on the timeline. I can see those little audio spikes. There's been a lot of clicking to to restart a statement
0: in those scripts, okay, yeah, no doubt there is and and I guess you know here we are chatting at the conversational end of the fourth podcast and fourth episode fourth fourth episode um, so have you learned anything?
1: That's particularly interesting about OpenGov and open data along the way, like I know you you know you, you, you have a wife, you have some kids, you have some people around you. like how do they react when you're telling them about this?
0: well usually uh open gov open data will get me an eye roll in the person <laughs> walking away there's It's not a subject that in itself is particularly interesting when just presented as you know those those four words. I, I think you really have to be able to convey to somebody what, you know, open data and upper open government means in terms of how uh, these policies and data sets can impact their lives and, and bring services and, and information in, into people's communities.
1: It's funny, you were telling me a story earlier that um, you had sent the podcast to, to – the- to someone close in your family, and you were expecting just to get feedback, right? Don't list, don't listen to it because it's a great podcast, but listen to it because you're close to me, and I want to know your feedback. And you never got that feedback, and I did the same thing as well with a few people around me who are non-open government, open data practitioners, just people that are close to me. And a lot of times, you don't hear anything back, and that can be that can be frustrating to not have that kind of support either. I think.
0: I see that as being one of the big challenges with the whole open data, open gov uh, movement is, is you know, keep, you know, if when you start getting some change happening, how do you, how do you keep that ball rolling? You know, because uh, I, don't know, I don't know how you maintain the enthusiasm.
1: And, and I think you said it best. I think the, the,
0: in and of itself,
1: open gov and open data, those four words or five words, if you count and. Um, just people glaze over, right? They just they just tune out completely. And I re- I remember when I was doing my Open Government Tour, the motorcycle tour across Canada, where I did events in seventeen Canadian cities. My motorcycle on the front on 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 the fairing, it said the words Open Government Tour 2014, and I had my bike was loaded up with gear, tents and and packages and just like it was loaded. And so whenever I was stopping at gas stations, at Tim Hortons parking lots, even on the street, like I stopped at a red light, people would literally come up to me and say like, what is this open gov business all about? And I would say to them, well, open government, open data is, is about bringing engagement, accountability and transparency in government. And with, for the most part, like 90% of the time, the reaction was from those people, oh, yeah, you got to do something about those politicians. I hate those politicians. And it's funny because I would, I would always tell them that, no, no, open government and open data, most of my work, 90% of the time, has to do with the public service. So politicians have, in a way, I'm not going to say ruined sort of the brand of civic engagement, but they're certainly not helping it. Because whenever people look online or look in the news, they're seeing politicians slamming each other and saying it's not – you can't trust him or you can't trust her and they're going to ruin the country. And, and people are listening to this all the time. So not only is OpenGov and data, in and of itself as a subject matter very dry, but as a brand, it, it has a giant mountain to climb because of all this bad PR.
0: No doubt uh, most people have i think a negative outlook towards government, or it seems that way. I guess it's a result of the the media that we're uh, bombarded with daily it's It's not always the good stuff that government's doing it's It's all the bad stuff, and who disagrees with who
1: and that's why stories from the open gov is something I wanted to do because when I first started putting the framework for the the premise of the podcast is I wanted to showcase all the great stories that are buried behind a government building behind convention and policies. And the stories are not just being, are not being told because a the media is not interested in telling that story or b uh, uh, an angle has not been conjured up to make the subject matter sexy. And I think you can make, Open and Open Data and the projects and the initiatives around Open and Open Data, sexy and interesting. I just don't think we've, we've allocated the money. Like think again for a moment, like the amount of marketing dollars that go behind a shoe. A shoe is the most simple, basic thing that you could think of. But billions of dollars every year from shoe companies are invested in marketing and selling these things and making it great. We don't have those dollars coming into open gov and open data. And that's a travesty because it's actually changing society. Imagine if we had those billions of dollars, how much more would change from a civic engagement perspective, from a services perspective? Okay,
0: I got to shut you down there. Yeah, okay? yeah. I, you know, I, I get
1: on my horse. Yeah, and I, <laughs>
0: yeah, I'll push you off that horse because uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one that's sitting here thinking sexy. What are you talking about? I can see a sexy shoe. You want to bring shoes up. Okay. We all know what a sexy shoe looks like, but open data, open gov, sexy. And also I'm kind of, I'm amazed that people actually walked up to you on your bike. It just said open government, open data at the front and people would actually walk up and ask about it. Oh, all the time. It's, it yes. still happens. You know, I, for twenty years I've been driving around a car that's got a twenty-foot hang glider on the roof, and <laughs> and, and, and nobody ever at a Tim Hortons walks up to me and wants to talk about this twenty-foot, you know, long thing on top of my car. But open gov, open data got the results. Maybe that's what I should put on my. Uh, yeah.
1: yeah, you know, it's funny, and that's an interesting perspective that I never considered because I've never. And for those of you who are listening uh, on the podcast, yeah. It, Troy is a seasoned, experienced hang glider. Uh, how long have you been hang gliding for? Uh,
0: just over 40 years.
1: Yeah, just over 40 years? Yeah. Is that all?
0: <laughs> That's it, yeah.
1: <laughs> and um, and it's funny because you're you're saying you've had this hang glider on your car and no one really approaches you to talk about it. Maybe while people per- perhaps turned off about government because of what they see in the news, they're still kind of curious about the change. They want to see change. And when they see my bike that says the open government bike on it, or back in 2014 when it says the open government tour on it, um, I, what you just mentioned actually gives me hope because I think people want to be involved. They just don't know how.
0: No, I agree with that for sure. I, I, think, I, I think that's a big problem with uh, – um, Well, especially on the municipal level, you know, community engagement, you know, people knowing what they can do, how they can get involved. And what I'm curious about is when did you first become aware of the term open government, open data? Like what got you excited about it? Because you're clearly somebody who's, you know, quite involved and has been for years, and this isn't your first podcast on the subject.
1: No, it's true. Uh, Me and this other gentleman, Samir Vasta, uh, did a podcast in 2014-2015 called The Open Government Podcast. Um, but my my interest the joke that I always say about this is that I'm French Canadian and politics is in my blood. And I first actually ran for political office in the mid 2000s and uh I was in yeah, three three elections in 3 years, 2006 federal, 2007 provincial and 2008 federal again, and even in, in 2004 I was a volunteer on a political campaign. And after spending all that time, I was actually really disillusioned with the whole process and, and politicians in particular, so much so that when I was running for political office, I had a slogan that said like, I'm not going to say anything. I I forget how I said it now. It was like, I'm not going to ever make myself look good by making somebody else look bad. Right. I really want to focus more on a positive approach. And I was just sort of working nine to five jobs, um, I, w- I was working for Harley Davidson Canada corporate, uh, in the late two thousands. And that's how I got involved with motorcycling. And then I was laid off. And then I said, well, you know what? I, I really want to pursue this sort of changing government and bringing a positive approach to government. And I got involved with a, a, another gentleman, um, name, oh, geez, I forget his name. I been so terrible with names. People at the restaurant know this, but, um, we, we created a website called citizenbridge.org, and the premise was to create a sort of a platform for engagement between politicians and the public directly without having to go through, say, a media outlet or, or something along those lines. And it was going to be focused entirely on uh, uh, communications and tools and understanding how parliament works. At the time when we were creating Citizen Bridge, we didn't know open gov and open data existed as a term. We were at the time; it was a lot of e-government, Web 2.0, government 2.0, um, and then I started to learn about the community, particularly the public service. And in 2011, I was lucky enough to do a presentation at a conference called the the G Tech Conference in Ottawa. Where I was introduced to these amazing public servants who were changing government from the inside. And that's when I really got to learn about open gov and open data and how smart these people were and how committed they were. My enthusiasm may seem like a lot because it's on a microphone, because I got a big personality. But these people I would used to say, like they're climbing Mount Everest without Sherpas. And I see my job as just flying in oxygen every so often because I know I don't have their energy, their know-how, their knowledge, their 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 strength, their stamina, but I know they need help and I'm going to do my best that I can to help them along the way and obviously the more you get involved in something, the more you get uh, acquainted with the subject matter and I just fell in love with OpenGov and Open data in general and and expanded my role in, in sort of the community.
0: And that community, I guess, has all kinds of different levels. I mean, there's a... It, when we start looking at government, we've got the municipal, provincial, federal. And regional, oh,
1: don't and, forget. And like, regional, like, okay, yeah, of yeah. course.
0: Now, are there connections between those different levels to help facilitate sort of this things becoming open? I mean, do, do things get shared? We talked in some of the podcasts about you know, like the sort of Guelph Accelerator and how other communities can piggyback on those efforts. Do those piggybacking? Do, does that transition through the other the, the different levels from municipal, provincial to national?
1: Yeah, it does actually. I mean, one of the stories was, was actually about PSAD, the public sector open data working group, where the Ontario government is sort of acting as a clearinghouse for open data practices in, in Ontario. Um, but I think what's been really fascinating over the course of the last well, at least ten years now for me is the maturation of the community has brought along with it a lot of um, a, a collegial atmosphere, so for example the a lot of the open data programs and open government programs are being melded into with digital government and you 're hearing a lot more about digital government the Ontario government has a chief digital officer right now so you 're seeing these departments sort of coming together and and the culture of open government permeating to to, to the, through to different departments, uh, the the free agent program, Canada's free agent program, the very first story we d- we did for stories on the op- uh, stories from the Open Gov is a program that was born out of Natural Resources Canada, and now it's in the HRDC, and I think I forget what the uh, the third department is now, but it all started with the Treasury Board or the Clerk's Office at at, at the municipal level, um, but now these these the culture the digital government the open gov the open data is is spreading to these other departments and it's great to see because everyone seems to know each other now that's the other thing it's so i'm not going to say it's insular because it's not but the community knows each other so very well like any other industry like back like 10 years ago it was a handful of people and we got to be very close and and know each other very well but now all of a sudden like i'm finding it interesting whenever I see a respected open government, open data voice, and I'm like, oh, who is that? I don't think I've had a chance to hear him speak before or hear this 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 person speak before.
0: So, so it sounds to me then that you would define open data, open government as not so much any particular policy or product. It seems to be more of a mindset or a movement. Is that
1: accurate? Well, def- definitely. I mean, the way I define... My elevator pitch for open government and open data is open government. It used to be what I told you on the bike. Open government, open data is about making government more transparent, accountable, and engaging. And those are the the three pillars of open government, open data. But when you say that to someone, their eyes glaze over because it means nothing. It's just government talk that means nothing. Or they shift their mentality to politicians. I hate those politicians. And that's not the conversation I want to lead. That, sh- so,
0: that shuts it down, doesn't it?
1: It yeah. totally shuts it down. So when I talk about open government, open data now is I say open government and open data is about changing the way government works. And it's the culture of the people, open data, digital government, all these kinds of things. Those are the tools that that will change how government works. But open government in and of itself is not a tangible, it's an intangible, it's a culture, it's a way of thinking, it's a hiring practice. It's it's the mentality, like you were saying, of the bureaucracy to be agile, to be, you know, uh, design-focused. It's all those kind of things that, that you can't pinpoint, but are so important to change the culture of how government works.
0: So question then... You- with this podcast who were we speaking to you know it's funny i don't know anymore
1: originally it was geared for an audience of people who wanted to be engaged with government but didn't know how and and i don't know if i'm i'm reaching any kind of audience at this point. And I say I'm, I should say we, because both you and I are doing this. But the original premise when I literally put that one pager for myself was this podcast is for those people who want to be more involved but don't know how. And learning about the free agent program, PSOD, um, you know, Dine Safe Teal, I thought would be a way for people to understand that this is what open government looks like and how else can I apply it?
0: Well, well, talking about those subjects, you know, on, on the podcast have, have led me to sort of go and at least search out a couple of those programs. And it, it kind of opened my eyes to how much was going on out there that I was unaware of. Is there anything that sort of uh, caught your interest in any way? Has anything sort of like,
1: wow, th- I, I,
0: I didn't know that, or I
1: wish I knew that earlier. Or,
0: well, just just today, uh, admittedly, I was looking at the, uh, the, you know, the dot, you know, sorry, the uh, open dot canada dot ca uh, website, and I discovered that you can, you know, take a look at, you know, the number of data sets. I think it's something like eight thousand data sets. Oh no, it's eighty thousand. Oh, eighty thousand. Okay, so eighty thousand data sets that you can look at and you can search by subject, but you can't really, you know, there's also a sample of, of a lot of the apps that have been created using those data sets. However, it almost seems like there needs to be an app to make it easy to explore those data sets, you know, from what I'm seeing. But again, that was just a first look, but
1: actually it's a really interesting, funny story about the Canadian federal open data portal. Um, Because when it was first created in the low 2010s, I think it was probably first launched in 2012, 2011. It had something like 200,000 open data sets. And at the time, and and this is the thing that, that I talk about open government, open data is that it's politically neutral in and of itself. It's a tool like social media. You can use social media in very different ways. And, a lot of the political agents out there have used social media in nefarious ways, I would say. But in and of itself, it is not a political issue. Like, say, for example, climate change has become a political issue. You either believe in climate change or you don't, it seems like. Social media, it's not that you believe it or you don't believe it. It's just how you use it. When it comes to open government, open data, the same applies. So in Canada, it was actually the, The conservative government, the Harper government, that got us signed up to the Open Government Partnership. It was Tony Clement, a conservative MP who was the president of the Treasury Board, that launched the Open Data Program in Canada. So it was a right-wing thing from that perspective.
0: You you say that as though that's surprising. It's
1: surprising when I tell it to people
0: because especially
1: Harper— who was generally regarded as a – the Harper government was generally regarded in the public as a, as a closed government. Right? We're talking about shutting down scientists and controlling everything from the prime minister's office and not really delegating a lot of that, those communication outside of that. Like it had that perception. And when I tell people that it was actually the Harper government that signed us up to the Open Government Partnership, they're shocked because it seems so um, out of character for for them to do that but going back to what i was saying a moment ago the conservative lens on open data in 2011 was that much like any kind of mba any kind of business more is better and they cheated a little bit when they populated the open data portal in those early days so for example uh Instead of having, say, one open data set on geese migration in Canada, they would have one open data set on geese migration for northern Quebec, one open data set on geese migration for northern Ontario, a geese migration open data set for, for northern Manitoba. And essentially, they, they stretched out those, um, those data sets, which was, like I said, you know, cheating. And the community got on their case. We said, this is completely unusable because if I want to search for a data set on geese migration, i got to download now like 10 to 15 different data sets. Just give me one on geese migration. So over the course of the last, I guess, maybe five to seven years now, um, they've tried to truncate. That's why the number has gone from 200,000 to 80,000. To give you an example, the city of Edmonton is one of the best open data programs in the world. Other municipalities and jurisdictions are catching up, but for the longest time, the city of Edmonton was definitely the, the the sort of like a beacon of what an open data program should look like as of this day, they have about i think twenty five hundred open data sets, and that's one of the best twenty five hundred compared to right now in the Canadian government eighty thousand
0: and is that because they started sooner or they've just been more sort of all in in terms of you know, embracing the concept.
1: Yeah. There was a gentleman, their old CIO, I think it was 2008. Uh, his name is Chris Moore. He got, essentially was a Kool-Aid drinker. He really got on top of it. He was a technology guy and um, he was obviously a public servant and he got, so we're, this is something we're doing. And and they got on really early and they did it right. They brought in some of the right people and they had the right culture that they implemented And that's how it came to be. But I just want to showcase again a little bit that even to this day, they only have about 2,000 to 2,500 open data sets, whereas the Canadian government still has about 80,000. The city of New York has something like a couple of thousands as well. So the focus has been originally in those early 2000s, 2010s, was more is better. It was going to be a natural resource. that was a language around it. It was going to be an economic driver, so we want to put as many as we can out there and pump those numbers and show we're doing great stuff. What the community, and by community I mean both sort of the users and the practitioners inside the, uh, the government, they came to realize that more is not better. What we want to focus on, more, what we want to focus on is providing high-value data sets that can be used. So, instead of pushing out, you know, a hundred different cars, we're just going to create, like, because we have limited resources, like, we're just going to create, like, maybe, like, five different cars that are just top shelf instead of creating a hundred really crappy ones.
0: So, question, and how does that work? Does the government, you know, say, in regards to the automobile industry, they decide, okay, we want to publish a data set, you know, say, on automobile manufacturing would they then create sort of a framework for such a data set and then contact the the industry people involved in the industry for their data like how does that whole data flow collection process work for instance when it comes to the you know government's going to be publishing a data set how do they how do they collect that data from the community
1: well government collects it, it, there's a great saying which that I'm sort of tooting my own horn here a little bit there's a saying that I have that's that goes, government is great at collecting data. They're terrible at publishing information. And government collects data on everything. The only thing is, is that, for the most part, the public does not have access to it. So what happens is how data is typically collected is part of a program or a service of some kind, like, say, affordable housing. When we did the open data in reverse method, right? The The, the, the Ontario government has a program to provide affordable housing to Ontarians. That program collects data, has a database attached to it, and and the public wanted to have access to that data. But the, a database is huge, and it can be a lot of sensitive information, and a lot of it can be messy. So what would normally happen in some jurisdictions is that a mandate comes down from a higher up a deputy minister, an assistant deputy minister. It could be a political mandate from a minister that says, we got to release more open data. That trickles down to, to a public servant that literally has this Excel document that sits on their desktop that is used to populate a report that they give to their boss on a monthly basis. And then all of a sudden, that Excel document is being turned into an open data set.
0: How does a government department do a cost-benefit? Like, how do you look at open data from a cost-benefit standpoint? Because there's clearly got to be a cost. So what incentivizes a government department to say, we've got to publish more data on this or that?
1: Well, that goes back a little bit to what I was saying earlier about the conservative approach at the federal level, which was that, we're going to release open data because it's going to be an economic driver It's going to be used. I'm not kidding you. This was the Tony Clement sort of line, which is open data is Canada's newest natural resource. And it's going to, and it's going to help businesses be better and more profitable.
0: I love, I love hearing it put that way, looking at it from a natural resource standpoint, I think is very, um, it's very visual. It is it's very it, visual,
1: yeah. And it was used as as a sales pitch. The thing is, is that it was the wrong sales pitch. It it, it got us off, but what we've come to learn is more is not better. More, like once again, eighty thousand open data sets right now from two hundred thousand to eighty thousand. The public still does not want that many open data sets. What we want are high value data sets, and a lot of the shift has turned from. While it still can lead to being an economic driver for businesses, two developments have taken place. One, and once again, full credit to the conservative, conservative government, is that they created an entity called the Canada Open Data Exchange. And that entity was solely dedicated to finding private sector businesses and helping them use open data to expand their business. The gentleman uh, behind the initiative is uh, Kevin Tour or Kevin Touet. He's actually not French, but he's based out of Kitchener. And he says that was our original mandate. But when we started going to private companies, we got to learn that those companies don't even know how to use their own data, much less open data. So... That was an interesting development in understanding that a lot of these small and medium businesses don't even know how to use data. Period. So when you're presented with something like open data, it's like asking, "Sure, outside Troy, you got this great, you know, oil well. Now go out and 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 you know, put a dike in it and, and and start harvesting and and purifying. You don't have the tools. You don't know how to do that. And that's what happened in the business community. So a shift, a drastic shift happened, which was now, the data sets that are being created, a lot of them are being driven from the commu- a community need. Business case has to be made for releasing this data, not so much a cost initiative, uh, sorry, a cost mandate. It's a community mandate, which is like a not-for-profit says we need this if we're going to continue forward. Or this sector requires this data to help provide shelters to homeless people in Toronto, whatever it may be.
0: Quid pro quo. We're not giving you that unless you give us your data. I'm not quite sure. Wait, sorry. What do you mean by that? Who, who, who's the oh, quid? Quid, in... quid pro quo. It's in the news these days. You know, oh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> the, the Trump yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, oh. so, so that 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 shift has taken place to be um, for open data to be much more community driven as opposed to business driven because the business community is not ready for open data, and at the same time, and the term that I use is. A lot of the times when you don't involve the stakeholders in the process, you'll spend all this time and energy and cost like you were talking about to release an open data only to be published in a portal where the data set will collect what I call digital dust.
0: Digital dust, yes. So, so question then regarding all of these data sets and how it's gone from 200,000 down to 80,000. That's
1: just Can, on the federal level. That's just the Canadian oh sure. open data portal. But
0: yeah. here's the thing couldn't you conceivably have one data set like with everything? Every, <laughs> everything goes to one data set and you know, it's, well, that would be, that would I be mean, an interesting I exercise. Mean, it, it Google's a, a data set. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. everything's out there and you just go in that search bar and you search and it. That's fascinating.
1: I mean, I can tell you right now that just Microsoft Excel and all, like if you were to create that data set, Microsoft Excel would not be able to handle it. Because I can tell you right now, just alone, uh, I, I remember working with a data set uh, from the Ontario government called the Greenhouse Gas Emissions uh, for the broader public sector. So basically, uh, we call it the mush sector, the municipalities, universities, schools, and hospitals. Uh, they're legislated now that on a yearly basis, they need to do an audit of all the greenhouse gas emissions that, that they, uh, I guess, release into the atmosphere, the energy that they use, and all that. That data set alone is humongous. Uh, I'm talking about something like, I think there's just 50 or 60 different columns in and of itself. And like rows is probably like a hundred thousand. If you were to create a data set that has every single element of every other data set, aside from being an organizational nightmare, like how you present that, um, I don't even think there's any software out there that could handle it.
0: So you think just h- categorizing it by industry is like, is that's what's being done now. It's essentially by industry.
1: No, it's, it's, it's more, the, the, the it's actually a really interesting question you're asking right now. Uh, most data sets out there are not organized in terms of industry necessarily, but I would organize more in terms of program. Right? So for example, geese migration, I, I gave as an example earlier, um, that would come from Natural Resources Canada because they have a program that follows geese migration across Canada, right? So they, they provide that open data set and put it on the portal. The Affordable Housing Program in Ontario has an open data set because it has that program. To create a data set you're talking about is a fascinating idea because you're talking about a sector. Like, say, for example, um, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, Insurance Bureau of Canada. Right, it would be interested for them to interesting for them to create a data set that would look at perhaps like a, an aggregated version of insurance products from financial data, from budget data, from the federal government, provincial government, and create their own open data set that would be say published by the IBC. So that would be, actually that, that's I never even I, I've never even thought about it putting that onus on different sectors and creating their own open data set from open data set that currently exists. You should start that. Yeah. <laughs> Do it for the hang gliding uh, community. Get get all the, the hang gliding open data sets that, that are out there. And actually think about it. Actually, this is a fun thought exercise. You would need weather data, right? You would need sort of weather patterns and weather data. You probably need geographic data. You would probably need uh, – I think it would be nice to also have some kind of retail data, like, for example, where to buy accessories and and equipment related to hang gliding.
0: Well, I was looking at the government uh, uh, website today, and there's a section on, for instance, aviation occurrences, mm. whether it's accidents you know, okay. or, or, or something, not so much an accident, but an occurrence, something that needed to be documented. So, like, what you're saying in terms of, like, it would be interesting looking at that information and seeing how that data set, if it was connected to the weather, where you'd be able to look at the, you know, as opposed to a, a just a report in, in some, you know, uh, accident inspector's report, you know, these going to comment on the weather. But it'd be interesting if that data set itself allowed you to, you know, click and be able to see what the forecast was for that or what the weather was that day that that occurrence happened.
1: I'm actually kind of curious... <coughs> Excuse me. I'm actually kind of curious. Um, if is there a hang gliding sort of? I'm not going to say governing body, but is there like like the equivalent of like the College of Nurses for hang gliders? It's a
0: self-regulated sport in Canada, and it's uh, uh, the regulating body is the Hang Gliding Paragliding Association of Canada, and it's through the association that members. Uh, are able to purchase uh, you know 5 million dollars uh, liability insurance mm-hmm. which you are required to have to fly at a lot of the flying sites uh, you know here in the country so I'm, wonder- I'm I'm assuming that as
1: part of their existence they have a mandate to expand the hang gliding
0: community they want to grow the the base Well, hang gliding and paragliding certainly Sorry, yeah. hang hang gliding uh the numbers in hang gliding have been shrinking uh you know over the years the the average age of the pilots has has has, has gotten older for sure i think ha- hang gliding as a sport has had a hard time shaking its uh, reputation you know that it garnered in the 70s as a what reputation as, is as that? a as, you know, bunch of crazies jumping off hills with kites uh, getting killed and and there certainly were a lot more uh, accidents of fatalities in the early days um, right now it 's a very respected uh, form of aviation uh, within the flying community it 's just that the general public still sees it as a you know as a somewhat of a crazy endeavor uh, Paragliding uh, by nature of the craft itself has grown much quicker in popularity because you know especially through Europe, you can travel on a rail with a paraglider, which is essentially packed up you know it 's a parachute basically the uh, that you you know can pack in a bag and and travel easily with, so that's why the paragliding numbers uh, have have gone up versus hang gliding. Uh, to my mind, though, it's it's certainly not as safe a sport because you don't have a rigid frame, uh, mm. you know, in your craft. So, but again, that's uh, that's open for debate, and I don't want to get into it with the uh, any of the panty flyers.
1: <laughs> I love. Jerry Seinfeld said it best. Like, I love to learn about subcultures. And for the everyone that just listened to your to, to what you had to say here, who knew that there was a bit of tension between hang gliders and paragliders? And that was sort of fun to hear. Um, but, but my original exercise about exploring this was it would be interesting to know. So if their mandate is to grow hang gliding, paragliding in Canada, this association you mentioned of, I wonder if they look at the data, if they look at when, you know, how weather has affected their numbers. If they look at geographic or the closure or the opening of airports across Canada, it would be a fascinating exercise. And if they were to create that data set, which is kind of like an aggregated version of a, a, of a hang gliding slash paragliding data set for their uh, members. I wonder if that would bring value to you guys
0: yeah i to my awareness it's that's the kind of if they're not really looking at that stuff. I was actually the uh um business manager for the association for a couple of years it's oh. it's been about ten years uh or longer since I gave that up but uh I got involved uh, in the association because I was interested from a marketing standpoint mm. you know I was interested in the p r and getting more people involved in the sport however i said uh I spent my two years really just doing administrative stuff, you know, uh, you know, processing memberships, uh, um, pilot ratings, that sort of things. The um,
1: so so getting back on track a little bit from this sort of hang gliding and paragliding tangent we went on. Um, I, I do have some questions for you a little bit because you're you're fresh into the open government, open data space. We've just talked about that. Has there been Anything particularly appealing about the concept of open and open data for you? So we talked a little bit about earlier how when someone looks at you driving around in Toronto or the GTA with a hang glider on your car, they they know what you're doing. But when they see my bike and they see open gov and they see open data on it, then they're curious because I postulated is that they they do want they do want to see change after learning about open government open data like has there been anything like i said sort of appealing about it do you have any doubts about its success even do you think maybe like this is a fool's errand that we're all on
0: well interesting question because uh probably two or three years ago when i first learned of google or their parent company now alphabet and they're interested in getting involved with you know the sidewalk toronto yeah, sidewalk labs sidewalk yeah. labs um, I thought, wow, that's very interesting, and I, I had a very positive um, reception to it, such that I went out and actually even registered some some sidewalk uh, labs, uh, sidewalk Toronto domains that they didn't <laughs> seem to have thought about. Uh, needless to say, with a lot of the negative stuff that's gone on a- around sidewalk labs and, and the idea of the data and who owns the data and how is that data going to be used – it made me realize there's a lot of negative sort of, you know, pushback, you know, from people. Um, and so as much as I might be myself, you know, open about the whole idea of, of more data we have available to us at being a positive thing. I mean, I've got, you know, I've got the Google Home Assistant uh, in my place and, and, I'm not afraid to to talk to it, even though I know that things are being saved. But, you know, but there are people I know that, you know, look at me crazy because I'm talking to a device in my house that is listening. And, you know, and, you know, we all know people, I think, that, you know, have heard of, you know, putting tape over the uh, camera on your laptop for fear of somebody looking. Mark Zuckerberg
1: does that. (laughs) Yeah. So,
0: but... So it almost seems you're either on one side of that spectrum or the other or or maybe sort of unawares or ambivalent in the, in the middle. So,
1: You know, it's funny because, and you're so right in everything that you said, but I look at these companies, Facebook, Google, Alphabet, um, as taking advantage of an uninformed public. I was a big fan of the show House, you know, Dr. Gregory House. And I don't know which season it is, but in one of the seasons, they explore the concept of informed consent. And basically, not house, a, a couple of sort of uh, supporting characters. Um, one of them was on the on the f- side that informed consent in the medical industry is impossible. You can tell all of the options to a, a patient and their family as to what can be done, but they'll never truly understand the implications because they don't have the expertise or the knowledge that, say, a doctor would have. But in the medical industry, at least in the context of this episode, um, you have you, the doctor was not allowed. Let me rephrase. Maybe not allowed is not the right way. The doctor was discouraged to provide an opinion on what the patient should do. Because the, the the you don't want to get sued, you don't want malpractice, you don't want that the ownership of the decision to fall on the doctor. You want the ownership of the decision to fall on the patient for liability purposes. But it's but it, it's not wrong. Informed consent by a patient or a patient's family is damn near impossible to, for them to make a decision because they don't have the expertise. So when it comes to this sidewalk labs issue and you're asking the public, are you okay with sidewalk labs and all of these elements that come with privacy and data security? You're asking an uninformed public, even though you're doing informed consent and and being very transparent and you're asking the public to provide an opinion that they have no expertise on. And, And there's a lot of people in Toronto that have been fighting that. And that's the unfortunate thing. Google home and Alexa's. It's very convenient and it makes your life easier. But again, people don't truly understand the implications that comes with it because they're not informed.
0: Implications or potential implications. Is it worrying about bad stuff as, as, as opposed to for sure they're going to be bad stuff.
1: It's you're absolutely right. And it's, and coincidentally, that's one, when I did I did a short film on open government, and open data, called Open. It was uh, released in 2015, and and the, the the theme of it was that open government, open data, more specifically, open government, is about creating trust between government and and citizens. When what you're talking about right now, in terms of implications or potential implications, is that. People trust Facebook. People trust Amazon. People trust Google to do the right thing.
0: And certainly some more than others. I don't know that I particularly trust Facebook.
1: I don't trust any of I've been off Facebook for six years. I'm weeding myself off of Google products. Um, I, I refuse to have one of those Alexas in my home, even though it brings convenience, because I don't trust those entities for the very simple reason that they're not accountable to me. Government is accountable to me. I have a vote. I can vote out someone that's doing the wrong thing. I have tools that I have access to, whether it's petitions or doing deputations or writing letters that can affect my government. I don't have that. I cannot send an email to Sergey Brin or Larry Page and say, change how you're doing your business. But I can put pressure on my government to say, don't do business with Google.
0: Gotcha. OK. Right. Very and,
1: and, 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 and that's my, my that's my biggest thing about trust is I find it funny that these that so many people will trust a private enterprise. But they have no control over that private enterprise.
0: OK, so then uh, Joe Public that doesn't trust government is then having negative, you know, this whole concept of open gov, open data being a good thing you're going to get pushback from that person, aren't you? Or, Absolutely. It's because inter- there's no trust. It's interesting to me that, you know, I'm sitting across from somebody who's such a big advocate of openness, but you are very private in terms of your own particular data. You know, it's, no, no. I'm, I'm private about
1: how I release data, right? I'm very selective. Maybe not private. I'm very selective about how I release data, and i'm actually kind of glad you brought this up because i have not talked about this in a long time and in i'm i'm going to be 42 in a couple of weeks now but when i was 35 i said i don't want to be a hypocrite to my own values so the 35th my 35th year i explored this concept of i'm asking government to be open and all that kind of jazz maybe i should too And I sort of did an experiment with myself and tried to be as open as possible with everything. Finances, online dating, social media, all that kind of jazz. And as part of that process, I learned a lot along the way. And I came up with obviously some more analogies and and, and examples. But I created sort of eight principles of what it means to be open. And... Perhaps, ironically, one of the elements of being open is actually to not release data. The To me, being open is more about being true with your intentions and being honest about your intentions and following through with your intentions. And and that's the most important element. And I think when it comes to government, we don't know what their intentions are, right? Conspiracy theories, whatever, we're... we're Politicians tell us all the time, this other person is going to ruin the country. When people look at Google or Facebook or whatever, for the longest time, it's only recently, but for the longest time, they knew what their intentions were. They were trying to make money. And we think we thought we knew how they were making money. But now, all of a sudden, that's been convoluted, right? With Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, Facebook is not just about making money anymore. They're about... Influencing politics.
0: Yes. Right?
1: Uh, uh, You're learning about how Google's using your data all of a sudden and and, and influencing other elements. And and Alphabet is getting into, you know, uh, military projects, right? Like when when Google slash Alphabet changed their mantra from do no evil to do the right thing, again, people started questioning that a little bit and and doubting their intentions. So – it's it's all a fascinating process, and the reason why I'm so involved with government and open gov and open data is because I want to create that trust between those two bodies. Because I have control over that, I want to be able to trust my government, but I can't, and that's a travesty. How do you feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> Once again, I got I got to apologize. I get so animated and so uh, I don't know. How, uh, I'm very passionate about it. I, I do apologize for. So you've
0: been you've been involved in this movement for then over a decade. It sounds like.
1: Well, I've I first entered sort of politics officially in 2004 as a volunteer. But even real quick, back when I was in high school, we used to do these th- these things called ISUs, Independent Study Units, and my OAC, uh, ISU was very topical of the time, which was. What would happen, logistically speaking, if Quebec were to actually separate from Canada? What would happen to the Canadian dollar? What would happen to infrastructure like bridges and things of that nature, services? So my ISU is actually exploring that that political manifestation uh, for a social science program. But
0: So I've been, like I said, it's sort of in me. So, but when I say a, a decade, you've had a decade of sort of awareness of the sort of open data, open government sort of yeah, movement. Yeah, yeah. So how do you feel after 10 years and being, you know, in the trenches? Are, are you feeling optimistic that the, the ball's rolling and it's got momentum and it's going to keep on rolling and, and you're happy with the way things are progressing and, and then hoping to sort of help facilitate this by getting more word out through this podcast, for instance?
1: It's funny. You, I do feel confident. I feel confident because there's a need, and you know, necessity is the mother of invention, and and there's a there's a necessi- necessity for government to progress. How that manifests itself, I could be wrong about open government, open data. It's quite possible that tomorrow is going to come up with a better premise.
0: And how do you measure the process? It's it's not by the number of data sets being released, is it? Is that
1: like I said, my thing is always open data, is sort of the tangible element that a lot of people talk about digital government is is something tangible, like how you're able to say, renew your license online, for example. Um, But to me, I focus more on the culture. I focus more on how the bureaucracy works. There's a lot of convention in government that need to be broken. They're not laws. They're not legislated. They're not, you know, edicts, but they're conventions. There is that mentality inside the bureaucracy where, We've always done it this way because we've always done it this way. There's a great phrase in the community that we use a lot, which is government is a 19th century institution using 20th century tools to solve 21st century problems. I like to think that open government and open data to a certain extent and obviously digital government um, will reconcile that dissonance.
0: Okay, well, looking ahead towards the next season of the podcast, um, what would you hope to sort of bring to light, you know, in order to, uh, I guess, increase awareness and interest and, and get people wanting to, you know, listen to the next episode? How do, you, how do you keep it interesting? How do you keep it exciting? How do you make it sexy?
1: Yeah, and, and that's just it. I mean, I mean you got to find good stories for starters. I'm not going to lie to you, the first nine stories, the first three episodes that we did, I was very closely related to those. I was involved in some of the projects and, excuse me, I was involved in the projects and I paid close attention to them. So I had a very in-depth knowledge. For season two, I want to expand that scope outside of sort of my um, comfort zone where I really need to research the subject matter. I want to bring in more interviews and actually recorded interviews. I really like what we did, um, which was every so often in season one was throwing clips from deputations at city hall or the married children thing. So I want to add more production behind it. I want to expand the scope outside of sort of my own knowledge base and then look at international examples Um I also want to get feedback from the community. Like, how do we make this sexy, right? Like, how can we make this podcast better? This is funny. We started this episode talking about how hard, like that first half an hour, 45 minutes, and how many times we had to restart. I think we found a really sweet spot, like of conversation between the two of us. Mind you, I've done most of the talking, um, but maybe
0: it's something we explore. Maybe it's not a scripted conversation. Looking at it from my end, uh, I mean, my motivation with getting involved with you, I certainly had an interest in, you know, participating, not so much because of the subject level, but more or less getting some experience on the microphone, playing with the mixer, you know, all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot that I still haven't done because, you know, after we've laid down the the rough recording, you've been taking it back to your place to do the editing and lay down the, you know, the music bed, that sort of thing. Moving forward... I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying this experience for sure, no doubt. Picking up skills that I did not have before, and uh, certainly need to continue refining. Um, but from an interest standpoint, as you know, again, me backing away from the microphone and thinking of this as a, as a listener, and then also looking at it from a production standpoint, I'd like to look at next uh, next season, introducing a third microphone. I mm. like the idea of whenever we can. Getting somebody else in the seat, now, even if that's actually in the seat here in the studio space, or whether it's some somebody we connect to through a phone connection or through Skype, but and getting that convers less less scripting and more conversation that that's really appeals to me, and then my role then being more of you know helping to facilitate and keeping good conversation going, and maybe um, you know jumping in with the the uninformed opinion or the, the, you know, the uninformed question that, you know, people might have, you know, I like the idea of, you know, having somebody in the seat that like you is, is involved in some way. And then we can kind of showcase what's their involvement. What, you know, that's.
1: Yeah. And it's funny because just personally speaking, and I'm going to share this with you because I haven't shared it with you yet, which is we've talked a, a, a lot about, creating a performance for these episodes and and how you need a big personality i think to make it sexy and entertaining otherwise you're just listening to to some boring droning on it'd be really interested to see you as a producer of of the podcast from a technical perspective and 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 taking on those responsibilities where I'll research the content but when it comes to putting the final touches on the podcast itself, the musical bed, the intro, the outro, dropping the inserts, the uh um uh, the bump, I call them bumpers. There's got to be an official term in the in the in 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 the industry for like I, I call them bumpers which is kind of like the little connective tissue between two stories in in the stories from um from the OpenGov, I use chimes you hear the yes. right, kind of deal, but it, it'd be interested to see if you'd be interested in just not just, but taking more of that on. Whereas I can focus more on sourcing guests, that third microphone, uh, scripting the story and, uh, and not worrying so much about the technical. Is that something that, that you really want to explore?
0: Definitely. Definitely. I would like to take that on, you know, obviously, you know, one step at a time, but, uh, you know, during the downtime, I'll try and sort of work on even some of the rough stuff that we've already recorded just to see what I can do. But again, it's, it's I, I, that'd be a great opportunity.
1: I think so. And and the the one thing, it's funny because I don't think, I don't know if I've given you enough credit for this, at least certainly not on the mic because it's been scripted, but I can't reiterate this enough. You came in, you had never done a podcast before. You never really truly understood open and open data before, um, and you obviously you were not a performer. You were not someone that had ever been on stage, from my understanding, and actually been acting off a script and, and creating a performance before. So you've had quite a, a steep hill to climb in this process, and and had to sort of learn very quickly. So I'm, I've been very impressed with your progress. My hope now. I hope you feel more comfortable with it. Is to really delegate that ownership of the podcast. Like I don't want it to just be me and 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 you're my co-host and label only. Like I really hope you you'll, you'll take that ownership and say and
0: make it your own. I appreciate that, Richard. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's some it's, hesitancy. It's in a matter voice. of yeah, in and, and and it's a matter of you know. I'm excited about bringing sort of a, some production uh, input to the table. Uh, so th- certainly from that end, yeah, from a production standpoint, the, on, the, on the subject matter end, yeah, that, I think that, that's your baby. You're the one that's involved in, you know, we can all only be involved in so many worlds, and, and I don't have any room in my head for the open data world other than, you know, jumping in on this with you and, and helping to produce the podcast
1: it's It's funny because you represent an a, a the audience that I had in mind, which is people who want to get involved but don't want to get involved so for me there's i'm I would be so excited if I were to suggest an idea or suggest an approach and you said and you said no or at the very least not a hard no, but let's try it this way instead like yes actually it's it's a human centered design principle human-centered design principle of saying yes, and yes, let's do that and try this as well, or yes, and let's pivot a little bit in this way. So like this, you feel as though you're not just a paid actor, which you're not, you're not paid at all. We're not getting paid anything.
0: Yeah. I would be open to exploring that. And I guess the big part of that is it's, it's learning, just like we've had to learn how to sit down and, work together and we're still learning out, you know, for instance, learning how to uh, make appointments that we both take note of and remember the dates of that sort of. So it's definitely a work in progress. Um, Yeah. I'm, I'm open to that whole idea of terms of looking ahead at the next script and, and, and being part of that process.
1: Yeah. And and it's because I know I can't do this by myself. Um, That's why I brought you in because literally I had, draft i had recorded some of the episodes already i had them canned and and but i was never happy with just having one and like one voice i mean and that's when the the opportunity presented itself of bringing you in i decided to essentially ditch all those old episodes rewrite the scripts which that first episode that we did like we learned a lot into the second Uh, to give you guys a little bit of sort of behind-the-scenes knowledge, the, uh, the difference between the first script and the second script, sorry, between the first episode and the second episode, in the first episode, we had long paragraphs that both me and Troy would say. Like, I'm saying maybe four lines, five lines in total, and then it would switch to the other person. In episode two, or let me rephrase, one of the things we learned in episode one is that those need to be maybe one or two lines between we alternate between each other and make it much more fast paced. Um, Not only I think is, is more fun to the ear, but from a production perspective, it helped me and Troy quite a bit because it can be intimidating looking at a block of text. And if you screw up halfway through that block, or even towards the end of that block, you have to start from the beginning. So it would slow us down. Um, So now so continuing with that, I have no idea where I'm going with this. I have <laughs> my train of thought has officially derailed. So let's get back on track here.
0: So getting back on track, looking ahead at the next season, do you already have it mapped out in terms of the, where you want to go and and subjects that you want to explore next?
1: I have some subjects, uh, and stories more specifically that I want to explore. Absolutely. Um, what I have not come to a resolution yet is the format. Um, writing down these scripts are a lot of work. You know, it's, it's sort of that 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 presentation thing. Like, you, for every word that you write, for every hour you spend writing a script, you're going to spend ten hours. Practicing the delivery of that presentation, I forget what the, the.
0: So, so having a third microphone and where you're actually sitting down with somebody, whether it's face to face or again, you know, electronically, wouldn't that sort of go a long way towards minimizing a lot of, you know, no, no. The uh,
1: having the third microphone, the, the, the my biggest issue right now with format is more. Do we remain scripted or does this become interview style? The problem with interview style is that we're no longer telling stories, we're telling facts. Because for, to be honest, most people that you would interview are not good storytellers. It, it's just a fact of life. And, and you know the good storytellers when you see them because you know them and you park your butt and you just listen to them talk. There's some people that just have a knack for it, but they're a very small percentage of the public and there's even fewer of a percentage of that when it comes to the public service, I would argue. Um, so remaining scripted at least keeps us on track about telling the story. Bringing a third voice might be one of those things where the interviews conducted sort of offline and you drop in, drop in moments that are valuable, but you keep the narrative intact. But that takes a lot of work. So I haven't and and to be honest, I just doing this for this back and forth, like you're you're a good interviewer, and obviously I can prattle on about anything at any time and you keep me on track. And maybe that's something we investigate, which is let's talk about the story of open north, for example. And and you are you know, we prep some questions ahead of time and you and we and I just sort of tell the story of open north as I know it. Uh, from the research that I do, so I don't know. I haven't decided. What are your thoughts?
0: Well, I feel I feel guilty in in terms of dead air is dead air, and and I I'd like for this podcast to be interesting and. And I'm already feeling that even this conversation that we've been having now, obviously, it's going to end up getting chopped up, and, <laughs> and you know, and you're going to put down the stuff that you think is pertinent, so you don't lose lose the audience. I guess that's what's key is keeping the audience, so keeping it interesting. Uh, and because this is a subject that I'm not totally versed in, there's a challenge with with me keeping the thoughts going. Admittedly, so. From a format standpoint, the scripting uh, helps me from a participation level, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, and I guess I was, you know, looking at the third, the third microphone as a way of me, me backing away from the microphone as, if it's non-scripted and, and helping to sort of more or less be a facilitator as opposed to, you know, co-host on the subject. I'm not so much a co-host if I'm just a script reader. You know what I mean? I, I see. No, no,
1: no, no! Don't don't think of it that way. You are a co-host. I mean, you you might not be involved in the production side, but you are a co-host. the 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 ep, the, the the format the 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 podcast would not be the same without you. So don't don't st- sell yourself short that way. You're just you're just seeing. And that goes back to the ownership element that I want to give you, kind of deal, right? That delegated ownership of you don't feel like a co-host because you're not actively participating in the creation of the episodes. If you did that, then you would feel like like a co-host, even if it was just on a production side. But just because you don't write the, just because you don't write the script, does not not make you a co-host. Gotcha. Okay. Right. Um, and at the same time, and this is, I think, has been the the most difficult. And frustrating aspect, which is to not get feedback from the community. Like, I I refuse to believe that we're perfect right off the bat. I refuse to believe it. I refuse to believe there's not a single person that's listened to the episodes and not said, I would have done it differently, or uh, I wish they would have done this, or I wish they would change that. So getting feedback from the audience is essential in in the next stage. And to be honest with you, I think I'm going to make a concerted effort. I'm going to research the stories, but I'm not going to start putting together the scripts or the episodes in terms of production until we both have feedback from the audience. Maybe we have to do a survey, send it out to people,
0: No, I like that idea of actually, you know, taking as it's all wrapped up after this episode uh, in in a neat little package with a link, getting it out to whoever we think we want to get that feedback from, I suppose.
1: I think so. And it it stays true with the principles of what Agile is all about and which is like, you know, test, sorry, uh, implement, test and and re-examine I forget how the cycle goes and and do it again um because uh yeah
0: I don't I, have anything else to say well i when you when you put in the scripting for today's episode the, the the word agile you were clearly using it in a in a way that I wasn't aware of from a definition standpoint so how was that again
1: the agile is a um, acronym it, no 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 oh. no no it's 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 funny because it it's a methodology that doesn't have a method. Agile is the premise that um, you're, when you're creating or designing anything, this is okay. this is how I like to describe government for the most part. Government is an institution that is going to spend five years developing a program or a service that will last 20 years. That's not agile. It has to be able to iterate. It has to be able to change depending on dynamics and forces from from society, from 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 government, and by government I mean the politic the politics. Like there are political agents at play. Like if a new government comes in, they want to go a different approach. Like the bureaucracy has to be ready for that. So agile is that premise. It's a methodology that states of. Let's try something out. We'll implement it. We'll test it. We'll get feedback, and, and we'll just keep reiterating, which we'll just keep doing this cycle all the time because nothing is ever finished.
0: Gotcha. Makes sense now, yes. Right? Um,
1: one of uh, something that drives me personally is a little bit like the evolution of TV shows. Uh, I'm a big fan of The Simpsons. I'm a big fan of uh, Married Children to the point that I even dropped an insert from one of the older episodes from Married to Children. But if you look at those TV shows, even Seinfeld, if you look at those first few seasons, the end product was so very different. One of the fundamental ones from The Simpsons, if you look back, is the main character was not Homer. The main character in those first few seasons, the person that that the stories were based around, that, that was the funniest character, that the focus was on, was Bart. And then, as the show evolved, the writers and the producers came to realize that the funnier character and the lead character was actually Homer. so I, I hope that something like that happens with this podcast that we refine and develop um, and continuing with The Simpsons, like they realized that it was not the story went beyond just the family. It involved Ned all of a sudden and it involved. Uh, uh, Dr. Hibbert, and it involved Monty Burns, and all of a sudden you have this rich tapestry of, of characters that make this entire world happen. I'm hoping we're able to do that if this podcast is still going on 25 years from now.
0: Well, I'm not sure it's about 25 years from now, <laughs> but uh, 20. let's uh, reach uh, lower. 25 weeks from now, let's go. 25, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, In of, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, that's... Um, all right, very good. I'm, I'm clearly not a uh, a Simpsons uh, watcher because I didn't know any of those names except for Homer and Bart, and I, I, was, I still thought Bart was the star of the show. So,
1: <laughs> well, they, obviously Bart is part of the show; is is, is important. But yeah, definitely Homer it took over. I think it was probably around season three, where where it was a drastic change in and how the writing was done. So it's um, it's been interesting. Anyways. I don't think I got anything else to say. I think I'm all talked out for the day. I think you are too.
0: <laughs> well, as I think about it, yeah, Richard, uh, it was an interesting experience this time for sure, working without a script, and uh, I'll be having a talk with myself later.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. So I guess we'll conclude this, uh, this episode by saying uh, we're concluding the season. And um, please give us feedback on how to make the show better. We thank you all for listening. Do you have any parting words?
0: Happy New Year, everybody.
1: (laughs) Happy New Year,
0: and uh, let's make it open.